Hebrew Roots and One Lie Groups argue that Christians should celebrate the festival of Sukkot, which is the fall harvest festival God appointed for Israel to joyfully commemorate their living in temporary booths when they escaped Egypt. Their argument frequently relies on Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, which is a passage describing how in the end of days, the nations will be commanded to travel to Jerusalem each year to celebrate Sukkot. And it says, Then all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths, that's Sukkot. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. And if the family of Egypt do not go up and present themselves, then on them shall come the plague that the Lord inflicts on the nations that do not go up to keep the festival of booths. Such shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to keep the festival of booths. Lex Meyer of Unlearn the Lies cites this passage as a proof text for his position that Christians should celebrate Sukkot. Here's the clip. Many Christians have been told that we no longer need to keep the feast days. But is that really true? Did you know that there is a prophecy in the Bible that tells us that during the Messianic Kingdom, all the nations of the world will be required to go to Jerusalem to worship the King, Yeshua, during the Feast of Tabernacles? He does say this passage describes the Messianic Age, but he does not explain whether he thinks the command for the nations to celebrate Sukkot and Zechariah 14 has directly come into effect for Christians today, or will only come into effect in the future. This lack of clarification can give the impression that he thinks Zechariah 14, 16-19 is in effect for Christians today. Tim Haig of Torah Resource gives a clearer line of argumentation. He says, the scriptures are clear that the victory of God in the end times is manifest by his people, both Israel and the nations worshiping him together. The reign of Messiah, characterized as it is by the global worship of the one true God, is marked by all of the nations coming to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. The fact that the millennial reign of Yeshua includes the celebration of the Moedim, that is the festivals, is significant because it shows that the Lord's appointed times have a farther reaching significance than the revelation of Yeshua's death and resurrection. If they were merely shadows of his first coming, then they would serve no purpose in his millennial reign. But far from their meaning being exhausted in the first advent of our Messiah, the festivals also point to his kingly reign and to the time when, quote, he will be one and his name one, unquote. That is from Zechariah 14.9. It would seem to be a matter of wisdom then if we will be celebrating the Moedim during the millennial reign of Messiah Yeshua, that we should strive to understand the meaning of these appointed times by celebrating them now. Tim Hegg acknowledges that Zechariah 14 describes a still future event and that the command for the nations to celebrate Sukkot in Jerusalem does not come into effect until after the second coming of Messiah. In light of this, he argues that if Gentiles will be celebrating Sukkot in Jerusalem in the future millennial kingdom, then Christians should celebrate Sukkot around the world now. Where Tim Hegg takes us too far is he then extrapolates that to assume that Gentiles will be worshiping all of the festivals and should be worshiping all of the festivals now. However, when we look at Zechariah 14, it is only speaking of Sukkot, and so for this video, Sukkot is what we will be focusing on.
While I appreciate Lex's and Tim's desire to understand how the Tanakh helps illuminate the New Testament, I think they read too much into Zechariah 14, 16-19 to argue for a position that does not have any New Testament support. When we read the New Testament, we find that during the present age, that is, after the Messiah's resurrection, but before the Messiah's return, Christians are not expected to participate in Sukkot, much less are they expected to observe Sukkot in the same way Jews are. So the question for this episode is, does the future expectation of Gentile participation in the celebration of Sukkot in Jerusalem after the second coming of Messiah imply that Christians should celebrate Sukkot around the world today, as Tim Haig argues? In another article, Tim Haig responds to Messianic Jewish theologians Dr. Daniel Juster and Rabbi Russ Resnick, who write this in their critique of Tim Haig. One of the serious problems with one law interpretation is that it seems to ignore the awesome change that has come through the death and resurrection of Yeshua. The eschatological kingdom has come, and Gentiles are invited into full spiritual participation without the pre-Yeshua requirements. The spiritual equality of Jew and Gentile in the Messiah is a monumental change. The Gentile in the New Covenant has a far better status than the uncircumcised alien and even the pre-Yeshua Jew, because he that is least in the kingdom is greater in privilege than John the Immerser. He is even raised with Messiah and spiritually present with him at the throne of God. There is no higher status. Essentially, Dr. Juster and Rabbi Resnick acknowledge that the Messianic Age has begun with the resurrection of Yeshua, which has brought a new reality of radical equality between Jew and Gentile through faith in Messiah. In response, Tim Haig targets their admission that the end of the ages has in fact begun, and he says this, The Gentiles celebrate the feast with Israel, Zechariah 14, and honor the Sabbath, Isaiah 56 participating in the prayers and sacrifices of Israel in the temple. If the eschatological kingdom has come, then why would anyone want to restrict the Gentiles? If indeed the eschatological kingdom has dawned in the present age because of the risen and reigning Messiah, then the beginning of the future should be evident in our communities, a future that envisions the nations coming to Israel's God, seeking to walk in his ways. Now this reveals the crux of the issue between what Messianic Jewish theologians like Dr. Jester and Rabbi Resnick and one law teachers like Tim Haig think about Gentile celebration of Sukkot and other holidays. They both follow the New Testament's teaching that the end of days has been inaugurated with the Messiah's resurrection being recognized as the first fruits of the future general resurrection as shown in 1 Corinthians 15, 21-23, and as 1 Peter 1.20 says, He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Tim Haig argues that if the New Testament teaches that the end of the ages has already begun, as Messianic Jewish theologians admit, and Zechariah 14 simply describes a later period in the end of ages after the Messiah's second coming, then shouldn't Christians replicate the future in the present? Messianic Jewish scholar Dr. David Rudolph argues against this line of reasoning by pointing to a teaching of Jesus. He says, Even if God calls the nations to observe Sukkot and other aspects of Israel's calendar in the future, why would that mean Gentile believers should celebrate Jewish festivals today? 
Are we supposed to do everything now that will be done in the eschaton? Where do we see this principle in the Bible? Consider Yeshua's teaching. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Matthew 22.30 Should God's people therefore not marry in the present age? Dr. Rudolph shows the unsustainability of Tim Haig's argument. If Tim Haig's line of reasoning about Sukkot is valid, then no one should be married either. Of course, we know this is not true intuitively, and especially considering 1 Timothy 4, 1-4, which condemns people who forbid marriage. Just because non-Jewish nations will be required to celebrate Sukkot in Jerusalem in the future, it does not mean Christians are required to celebrate Sukkot worldwide in the present. Dr. Rudolph suggests something else to consider. The possibility that the Sukkot celebration in Zechariah 14 will only involve representatives from the nations, not every member of the nations, because it would be physically impossible for hundreds of millions to billions of people to be in Jerusalem for the feast. Not only does Dr. Rudolph's argument address the faulty logic of Tim Hegg's position, but the New Testament argues against Tim Hegg's conclusion. The biggest reason why the future reality of Zechariah 14 does not imply that Christians should celebrate Sukkot in the present is because the New Testament teaches that this is not required for Gentile followers of Jesus. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find God place the expectation to celebrate Sukkot on the shoulders of Gentiles in the period after Yeshua's resurrection, but before the second coming, which is the period in which we still find ourselves. The only place in the New Testament where we have mention of Gentiles worshiping in a manner reminiscent of Sukkot is Revelation 7, 9 through 17, which is a description of future worship in the world to come, not a prescriptive requirement for Gentiles on earth today. And again, as Dr. Rudolph points out about the lack of marriage in the world to come, just because something will happen in the world to come, it does not automatically mean it is required to happen today. The question of whether Gentiles become responsible to the whole Torah once they become Jesus followers was the exact question taken up by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. At the beginning of this chapter, some Pharisaic followers of Jesus voiced their opinion that for Gentiles to be saved and a full member of the Jesus-following community, they should be circumcised, in other words, become Jews and commit themselves to a Torah-observant life. This controversy resulted in the Jerusalem Council. Acts 15, 6-11 says, The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Here Peter argues for full Gentile inclusion, based on his witnessing God, give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. If the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit without having to become Jews, 
then that means God wants Gentiles to remain Gentiles after they place their faith in Messiah. They do not need to become Jews and Torah observant to be saved and to be full members of the believing community. This has significant implications for Gentile responsibility to the Torah. Acts 15, 19-21 presents the conclusion of the apostles and the elders as given by James, and he says this, Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols, and from fornication, and from whatever else has been strangled, and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. There is no mention of Sukkot or any of the festivals in this authoritative ruling. If the apostles and elders thought Zechariah 14, 16-19 is directly applicable to Gentiles in the present age, then we would expect they would include it in this pivotal ruling, especially because in Zechariah 14, the nations who failed to celebrate Sukkot will be punished. Not only is there no instruction for Gentiles to celebrate Sukkot at the Jerusalem Council, but such an instruction does not appear anywhere in the New Testament. Hebrew Roots and One Law Groups argue that James's remark about Moses being taught in every synagogue on Shabbat in verse 21 implies that Gentiles should slowly but methodically become more and more Torah observant and that the original four prohibitions are merely a starting point. This line of thought fails for many reasons, but here are two. First, James's remark about the Torah being taught in the synagogues every week is not included in the actual letter that was sent out to the communities affected by the ruling. This letter is transcribed in Acts 15, 23 through 29. Second, in the transcription of the actual letter, the ruling says, For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us not to place any greater burden on you than these necessary rules, that you abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from doing these things, you will do well. Farewell. If verse 21 was as significant as Hebrew Roots and One Law groups make it out to be, then it would have been communicated in the letter sent out to the Gentiles. And if the four prohibitions decided that the council were merely a starting point for full Torah observance, then the letter would not have said, For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us not to place any greater burden on you than these necessary rules. The conclusion of the Jerusalem Council that Gentiles are to remain Gentiles is confirmed in the writings of Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, 17-20 says, However that may be, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God called you. This is my rule in all the congregations. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But obeying the commandments of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. God did not make a mistake when making Jews Jews, or when making Gentiles Gentiles. Jews are to remain Jews, and Gentiles are to remain Gentiles in the body of Messiah. Jewish people are to obey the commandments given to the Jewish people, and Gentiles are to obey the commandments relevant to them. 
But Paul makes it clear here that different responsibilities to Torah does not imply a hierarchy in status. That is what he means by circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. There is no hierarchy in the people of God. Jew and Gentile are equal. Both are saved by grace through faith alone and receive the Holy Spirit. One law teachers often think that this equality implies that both the Jews and Gentiles are required to observe the whole Torah. However, again, just like Acts 15, Galatians 5.3 shows us this is not what the New Testament teaches and supports my explanation of 1 Corinthians 7.17-20. Galatians 5.3 says, Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. The implication of this verse is clear. If circumcision, in other words being Jewish, inherently carries a responsibility to be committed to the entire Torah, then Gentiles do not have the responsibility to be committed to the entire Torah by definition. Rabbi Resnick and Dr. Jester put it this way, Galatians 5 warns Gentiles not to receive circumcision or they will be required to keep the whole Torah. The clear implication here is that without circumcision, Gentiles are not required to keep the whole Torah. This is right in line with the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Jews and Gentiles are fully united by faith in the Messiah, but Jews have a different responsibility to the Torah than Gentiles. This is supported by the fact that there is no mention anywhere in the New Testament that Gentile followers of Jesus should celebrate Sukkot in the present age after the Messiah's resurrection but before the second coming. The New Testament presents a picture of the body of Messiah as made up of Jews and Gentiles who may have different responsibilities to the Torah, but experience ultimate unity through faith in the Messiah and the reception of the Holy Spirit. All this being said, what Zechariah 14, 16-19 does show is a positive depiction of Gentile participation in celebrating Sukkot alongside Israel. While Tim Haig and Lex Meyer take this too far by saying this implies Christians should celebrate Sukkot now, I think you could use Zechariah 14, 16-19 to show that Gentiles can participate in Sukkot celebration alongside Israel today. If a Gentile Jesus follower is genuinely led by the Spirit to participate in this celebration, they are free to do so. Colossians 2, 16-17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Messiah. This is written to Gentiles who might have been participating in these Jewish practices, and Paul assures them that they are permitted to do so, and should not fear judgment from others. This does not require or prohibit Gentiles from participating in Jewish festivals but it does permit them to do so, if they have the proper understanding. Jonathan is working on an in-depth video on this passage, so subscribe to make sure you don't miss it. If you are a Christian who is led to check out Sukkot this year, I recommend asking a Jewish friend if you can join them. This ensures the proper understanding and respect for the celebration and the Jewish people. The significance of Zechariah 14 is that the nations will be worshiping God and celebrating Sukkot in unity alongside Israel, not by themselves. 
If you are a Messianic Gentile, that is a non-Jewish member of a Messianic Jewish synagogue, then when it comes to Torah observance, you are somewhat analogous to the sojourner living among Israel, mentioned throughout the Torah and is included in Sukkot celebration in Deuteronomy 16.14. Similar to the sojourner, Messianic Gentiles have been led to pitch their tent in the Jewish community and worship and live according to their Jewish community's norms. They voluntarily accept a responsibility to celebrate Sukkot for as long as they are led to worship within the Messianic Jewish community. Of course, everyone can find profound meaning and insight by studying what Scripture says about Sukkot and what it communicates about God's heart for Israel and understanding the prophetic meaning it has for the Messiah. But Christians should not feel pressure to celebrate Sukkot themselves. As Dr. David Rudolph says, Christian churches are not violating God's will or falling short of God's ideal if they do not observe the Jewish festivals. While the Gentile wing of the church should appreciate its Jewish origins, its Jewish scriptures old and new, its ecclesial identity in relation to the Jewish people, its Jewish Messiah, and learn about all aspects of Jewish life described in the Bible, Christian churches are not deficient if they do not follow distinctly Jewish customs. If you learned something new, please like the video and subscribe to the channel. If you would like to support us illuminating the Jewishness of the New Testament to demonstrate that one can be Jewish and follow Jesus and to respond to the errors of replacement theology and one law theology, you can support us monthly on Subscribestar where you gain early access to content and the opportunity to ask us questions for mailbag podcasts. The link is in the description. And if you're listening to the podcast, please leave us a review on wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.